0: Deep in the imagination, there's a crossroads, a space where curiosity and inspiration intersect and give birth to ideas. A space where music, science fiction, comic books, and pop culture inform the mind of what is and what could be. This is Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In each episode, legendary journalist Jeff Boucher welcomes the biggest names in genre entertainment for an expansive dive into all things pop culture. Journey with Jeff as he explores the latest news and recommendations of the hottest releases across entertainment with his most trusted confidants. You are now entering deep space. Heavy Metal presents Jeff Boucher's Mind Space. In the mind of Jeff Boucher.
1: Exactly. Now we're here, and yes, welcome to Mindspace. Uh, I'm Jeff Prouchet, and I am here with Evan Kopp, our producer, and our very special guest, Mr. Michael Giltz. How are you, sir?
0: I'm great. Oh, this is great. So Evan's going to be with us. I feel like I'm part of the after party, because every episode, there's a a pre-show party, then there's the after (laughs) party, where you and Evan dissect the show and the guest and give your comments, and I always feel, oh man, I wish I could make it to the after party. Now I feel like the whole show is the after party. It's a holiday party.
1: Well, no, you made it to the couch. This is like Johnny Carson. Like, you know, you got, you got the nod and the, the welcome and the the, the come hither, you know, Uh, it's, it was always sad watching Johnny Carson when people didn't get to go to the couch. Well, they
0: usually didn't. Right. That's
1: right. But it's still, when you could perceive it from the show at home, sometimes you could perceive it sometimes you couldn't because they would just go to commercial or that place card thing. But sometimes you could actually see the person kind of, look over and it was very sad (laughs) hopefully you treat me a little bit better than ed mcmahon too so hey come on star search bloopers i mean
0: that guy had a run that's true giving out money left and right (laughs) yeah exactly we've now made seven references that a lot of young people won't get (laughs) yes
1: exactly uh that's what we're doing here trying to keep things contemporary and of the moment now our next guest is a bing crosby expert (laughs) No, uh, uh, we are here to talk about Christmas today because Christmas music is really, I would think, one of the single best things about the holiday. I mean, one of the real strong attributes of Christmas, one of the reasons it holds on to the title of best holiday of the year, uh, it's got a heck of a jukebox. Don't you agree, Michael?
0: Absolutely. And there's no holiday like it, as Evan mentioned, at the pre-pre-show gathering. (laughs) Other holidays have music associated with them a little bit but nothing can come within a country mile of Christmas and you you made a joking reference to Bing Crosby he is the biggest star of all time in any media and one big reason is his christmas music he recorded of course white christmas a song he tossed off in an afternoon and it was so popular it doesn't exist anymore they wore out the master so much making copies that it was lost forever and they had to re-record the song. So we're hearing a later version recorded a few years later after he first put it out. The original version of White Christmas is gone forever because it was too popular.
1: Wow, you know, this is funny because growing up, my great aunt, who was a huge Bing Crosby fan, she would yell from the other room, stop playing that loud blank, you know, it'd be like Led Zeppelin or (laughs) The Beatles or whatever. Stop playing that, you'll wear it out. And I I never did, but she actually did. Her generation actually wore out White Christmas. So I I didn't realize that that was the perfect response at the time. So that's kind of sad. Um, That's amazing. And Christmas music music has been around for a really, really long time, too. I mean... Centuries? uh, Centuries and centuries. Like, uh, I'm looking at a new book here called uh, Holly Jolly. Uh, It's from a guy named Mark Voger, and he's a Christmas expert at least in this book, and it's a pretty nice book that's coming out this month. Uh, and he's got a timeline of Christmas music and it goes back all the way to, well, the 11th century. The 11th century is uh, when the word Christmas came about, the term, but the first Christmas song I see here is oh, Tannenbaum," and you know what year that would be? Any guess? Just random, it's hard. 1500s? No, that one's 18, uh, 1824, 1824.
0: It's a little right. later than I
1: thought. I thought that one would be
0: earlier. I got to put on my, my uh, Jeopardy hat.
1: I'm sorry about that.
0: No, no, not at all. Well, and you know uh, what was the earliest that they started playing Christmas music on the radio in, t- in terms of an annual holiday season where they said, all right, we're switching to Christmas music? Kind of a sad anniversary. It was the year of 9 11. KOST FM in LA started playing Christmas music shortly after 9 11. They just thought we need something we need a bomb and that station sort of became the precursor to all those radio stations that switch to an all christmas music format they do it every year now everybody joins in Uh, this year they were debating when do we do it do we start before the election or after the election they decided you know, the election was still going on finally on Thursday or Friday after the election had happened, but before it was decided, they said enough. They just polled their listeners and said, do you want to hear Christmas music? And people said, please, God, do you know what kind of year this has been? So FM started like November 7th or 8th uh, doing the Christmas music. You
1: know, and uh, how often do you think, like, what do you think is probably their most played song for Christmas? What do you think they cycle through the most? Just... Well, you,
0: you can go to Billboard's charts and you can see every year what sure. are the most popular songs on the radio or streaming for quite a few years now, the most dominant song. And one of the songs that I would say is one of the great records of the last 40, 50 years. You said to me before the show, think about the songs that have become standard since 1970. Uh, And think about the songs that have become great records, songs that you have to hear every year. And I'd have to say it, Mariah Carey's All I Want for Christmas Is You. That is a great Phil Spector-like Christmas record. And, you know, it dominates the charts. It's number one every year right now.
1: It really, uh, it's a a great recording. And uh, there's a funny video of her um, that shows her playing it. Uh, and, and listening, like, uh, she's perceiving that it's getting airplay every year. It's like a, a, a little funny video she did, but yeah, it's a great recording and, and got a lot of extra propulsion from being in the movie, um, uh, love actually.
0: Well, I, I think it was already hit before that. Or was that the year it came out?
1: No, no. I'm saying it got extra, extra propulsion from that. In, in addition to it's, it's huge radio play. I mean, it was a hit. Yeah. Right away. But, uh, I think it's, uh. It, that helped it get a little extra, you know, uh, sort of sentimental glaze for a certain generation of moviegoers.
0: Absolutely. So a lot of these songs now you'll find are in movies or TV specials. Of course, Mariah Carey has a TV special coming up. I forget which streaming service it is. Is it Apple or Amazon? I have no idea. You'll have to look that up on your own. uh, Go to justwatch.com and say Mariah Carey Christmas special. Then you'll find out. But all these acts you talked about Bing Crosby, uh, another one of my favorite Christmas records of all time would be the duet between Bing Crosby and David Bowie. Peace on Earth, the Little Drummer Boy from Bing's last Christmas special, which was in 1977.
1: Absolutely, I adore that one. And, and when you see the video or the excerpt from the TV show, the original special that you're you were referring to, it makes you really, really like David Bowie. Like he handles it so well. He seems so classy in that setting. Uh, he makes a little ride joke about. Uh, you know, his musical influences. He, he meets Bing Crosby, he walks in and the, the two of them act as if they're neighbors in a holiday village. And uh, they don't recognize each other, of course. And uh, they they have a little chat about their uh, their professions. Oh, you're in music? Uh, I do some singing. And uh, Bowie makes a, a, a silly joke about loving the old stuff, like John Lennon and uh, uh you know, like, uh, and Bing Harumps and plays along.
0: But the really says, sweet part as, of it. As far back as that, huh? Yeah, says, oh, exactly. yeah, the classics. <laughs> oh, yeah, the old stuff.
1: Um, and uh, what's really sweet about it, too, in hindsight, is that um, Bowie mentions his young son and uh, Christmas back at home with his, his son. And of course, that would be Duncan Jones, now the filmmaker, uh, who gave us source code and so many good movies. So that's kind of a nice little sentimental uh, burnish on that holiday. Well, that
0: was—I'm sure I watched it when it aired. I was about 11 years old, and it was the last one he created because he died a few weeks after it was filmed. It was—it aired after he had died, in fact. Uh, so uh, Bing Crosby was, you know, near death then, <laughs> just like watching Alex Trebek on Jeopardy. You're watching this man, and you're knowing he's filming these last few episodes up to 10 days before he dies. And in fact, the final episode of Jeopardy with a new uh, show. Hosted by Alex Trebek will air on Christmas Day. It's just how it fell out. It's a Friday. It's the last episode that they had that he filmed before, and he died like ten days after he filmed it. So it's you know it's just weird serendipity. But you mentioned Bowie and Crosby meeting each other. That's the joke. You know the doorbell rings. Oh, who is it? Oh, look at that! And Bing Crosby not recognizing David Bowie. That may actually be true. (laughs) No one no one's actually sure. Crosby knew who David Bowie was he was brought there by like the producers and his kids and they knew who he was of course sure and the the story behind the duet is that they said oh we want you to sing Little Drummer Boy and David Bowie said oh god I hate that song isn't there something else I can sing (laughs) and so they wrote that little piece on earth riff right there rehearsed it and did it a few hours later they all came with that came up with that on the spot lyrics those lines and did it boom you know five minutes later and you know little magic happened
1: I had presumed that that was a, uh, an arrangement and, uh, and sort of uh, interstitial composition that had predated that show. They did that on the spot. Yeah, it's, did yeah not they, know that.
0: it's more interstellar because David Bowie's like an alien landing on a Bing Crosby TV special, but it works perfectly.
1: That they came yeah. up with that on the spot while Ding, while Bing is at death's door
0: uh, yeah. is unbelievable. <laughs>
1: like, it's like crazy.
0: Well, and that that brings us to an idea. Every year when we do the Grammys and talk about the Grammys, we've got to explain to people the difference between song of the year and record of the year. So you were talking about what songs have been written since 1970 that are standards that have become great songs. And I would want to compare that to a great record, like right. being Crosby me, David Bowie, that's a great record. You don't want to hear a lot of people do that duet. They can, but that's not really interesting. It's just a great record. Whereas right. a great song is something you want to hear a lot of other people sing. So a song of the year is a song that is a standard that like a country act will cover, and a rock act, and a pop act, and a disco, and an R&B. You know, it can be sure. covered in all sorts of different ways, sped up and slowed down. Uh, a great record, uh, might be you know, Hey Ya by Outkast or Good Vibrations yeah. by The Beach Boys. It's just a great record, right. People can cover it, but you're not really waiting for that. So, if you're thinking about a great song, something that a lot of artists are covering now, what's one of your favorite songs that have shown up in the Christmas canon since 1970?
1: Well, you know, um, I have mixed feelings about uh, the John Lennon song. I well, it, it's well, a song that's more of a record, actually. Let me think for a second. Well, you know, I love um. Since then, hmm, maybe The Waitresses. I know that sounds funny, but I really like that song. I think it's it's kind of a fun song, and I like other interpretations of it. Uh, and I have a real soft spot for it because it's just the way that song found me. Um, How did it find you? Uh, just in Gainesville, Florida. Just a Christmas wrapping is the song I'm talking about uh, by The Waitresses, and it's just a fun, um, romantic, uh, and uh, heartfelt kind of look at the holiday season uh feeling of being alone and and not being alone and trying to find somebody and it uh i just always associate that song with that period of my life and i i, I love that song more than i love the record i think but uh it's also a great record
0: well and it's also a uh, a great compilation it's like a little indie record label z record said hey they got yeah. all their acts to do a song so you, you found a lot of different cool stuff on that on that lp that lp if you had it
1: yeah, the serendipity of it. Um, another, I mean, I, you and I both love. Uh, I'm sure fairy tale in New York, uh, the the Pogues song, you know, and um, from what would that be, 1984 four or five, 84 like somewhere somewhere there. Do you remember the the music video for that uh, had uh, Matt
0: Dillon in it? Do you remember that? No, not at all.
1: Yeah, it, it's hysterical. There's a music video that uh, uh, I mean, dozens and dozens of dollars were spent. <laughs> on this video, uh, the production, uh, it's it's pretty pretty simple jailhouse uh, kind of serenade uh, for the song. It's you know it's a forlorn song and uh, it's got a lot of different textures and levels to it about these uh, uh, the immigrant experience in New York City and uh, uh, yeah, Matt Dillon shows up in the video as a as a policeman. Uh,
0: well, he got, I could see him as a New York cop. That makes perfect sense.
1: Yeah, yeah. It, it's a pretty kind of a head scratcher. I never heard any context for it or anything like that. I'd love to know the story behind it. Um, if, if, you ever, if you run into him, could you ask him about that?
0: You know, I used to. I, 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 live, I lived in New York City for many years, for uh, almost 30 years. And I worked, my first job was at a deli on the Upper West Side really uh, a nice deli a nice italian deli connected to a restaurant Cucina rustica and uh it was a really good upscale deli and lots of people it wasn't like hey who wants a schmear with it? you know it was very nice expensive stuff for the upper expensive west siders and matt Dillon would come in quite often very nice very pleasant guy you know just very you know you can see what people are like when they're in their everyday mode he was yeah. just a nice guy came in with his girlfriend Damn good looking in person. I mean, yeah, much better looking in person. I mean, he's a good looking guy on film. Be like, wow, that's a good looking person. Yeah,
1: yeah. He's like his the structure of his face. I mean, he's like a he could be like a, a carved. It's what, uh, what,
0: what do you got against a uh, Happy Christmas? War is over by John Lennon and Yoko Ono, which is easily one of my perhaps if I had to choose one, it might be my favorite Christmas record of all time.
1: It is. I, I adore the song, and I have a complex reaction to it just because i i feel bad that every single time i hear it i make a christmas wish that yoko's voice won't come in on on the on the course and every single time she does and then i feel guilty for thinking that you should feel I, why are
0: you thinking god i miss john that's what i would think it came I think out- that at the beginning of the song yeah.
1: By I the think way, we're at the co- beginning of the song, but about uh, thirty seconds into the song, I making...
0: merry Christmas. You're just not happy with that.
1: It's just, it, it's just. I, I know it's, it's
0: shallow, and I know it's. You're one of those jerks who listens to Double Fantasy and skips her tracks, aren't you? Yeah. Oh Ah, that's a great (laughs) album and it doesn't work if you skip her songs they trade off back and forth to each other i know it's brilliant it's so good and she's at her most melodic self there everything about that song is wrong everything it's on paper it's a disaster it has a a heavy handed message about war. They bring in a children's choir, yeah. which is always a bad idea. Yeah, Yogo is singing on it. Uh it's just it's just awful. It's awful. It's it should be a disaster. And it's such a great song. It makes me so happy every time I hear it. In fact, we're recording on December first. Today is the very day it was released in America, way back in nineteen
1: seventy one. Is that right? Oh well yep. there you go. That's, was, that's a nice, that's a nice, you know, this has nothing to do with anything, but how rude was it to release The Exorcist on Christmas Day? <laughs> I mean, I just the, the audacity of that, like, just, I just think that's
0: hysterical. Like, and, and what does it say that there were lines around the block?
1: One of the biggest movies of the year.
0: <laughs> oh, oh, by, by far. And of yeah. course, as, as George Burns said in Oh God, yeah, sure. You know, why is it so hard to believe in me? Little girl spits up some pea soup and everybody believes in the devil. <laughs> I believe it was released the day after Christmas, actually. Oh, well. Sorry to spoil that. But they would have done it on Christmas Day if they could have. Nowadays, going to the movies is a big event. But we can't do that this year. People will go to the movies. There will be movies like Pinocchio. Maybe Wonder Woman 1984 will be playing in a few movie theaters. Most people are going to stay home, though, aren't they? And maybe they'll be listening to more Christmas music.
1: Yeah, it it will be interesting to see with Wonder Woman, especially because uh, will people go see it at... uh, on the big screen, if they know they can see it at home. I mean, like, you know, that, that extra, is it a disincentive uh, for people to go see it? Or is it, uh, is, there, is there enough built-in appeal to seeing a movie that, you know, director Patty Jenkins made with, uh, with IMAX cameras in part, for parts of it? Um, I mean, it, it's gonna be a big spectacle. It looks like it has a really dynamic visual style uh, and, and, and interesting look to it. I, I feel really bad for her that uh, the movie is going to be coming out on the small screen. I know that she's uh, happy about it publicly, and she I'm sure she's disappointed on, on several levels. But uh, it, it will be nice for uh, America to, and the world beyond to get a holiday treat like that. I think it's going to be a appointment viewing like they do in the UK, you know, with the Christmas specials, like as, as uh, you and I were talking about just the other day over on Showbiz Sandbox, which people should check out the podcast that Mr. Michael Giltz uh, does so well and that I've been on several times. And, um, but it, uh, what do you think about the Wonder Woman release on holiday?
0: Well, Christmas Day is now in the last 10, 20 years has become a really big time to go to the movies. It didn't used to be in the U.S., but now they've really turned it into an event. People go. It's a great thing to do. You know, you've opened the gifts by 8 or 9 a.m., depending on how young your kids are. You got the rest of the day. You want to fight with the family or you want to watch sports or, yeah, let's go to a movie. It's just a great unifier thing you can do this year most people won't be doing that. You will be able to go see, if you have Disney Plus, you can watch Pixar's new movie, Soul, which has great reviews. And yeah. if you have HBO Max, you can watch, you know, Wonder Woman 1984, or, you know, if you've got cable, you're probably watching a 24-hour loop of A Christmas Story.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I wish I could see the, uh, the deleted scene from Christmas Story. You know, the, the, there was a whole sequence in Christmas Story where he went to the moon, and meets Flash Gordon. You know, it's one of the.
0: Uh, oh, it's a it's a, a fantasy sequence. Oh, yeah, fun. it's
1: just like there because there was the outlaw, the Old West outlaw one. Then there's right. The, he goes blind in one. You know, like you'll
0: shoot uh, your eye out. Yeah, yeah,
1: and then there's one where he goes to the moon, and there's these sort of strange creatures, and and uh, a guy, you know, uh, Flash Gordon wearing an awesome version of a costume that uh, I think is the Al Williamson version of Flash Gordon. You know. Uh, the, like the red shirt, um, just, it's actually, I've, I've decided it's the coolest possible cosplay option. <laughs> Who are you? I'm Flash Gordon from the deleted scene from A Christmas Story. <laughs> <laughs> it's like the awesomest cosplay option ever.
0: <laughs> do you have any family Christmas traditions in terms of viewing? Or do you have a Christmas album that you always play? Because if you watch, you know, of course, Peanuts, A uh, uh, Charlie Brown Christmas, that leads you right into the soundtrack to that.
1: Absolutely, and Vince Giraldi and 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 the, I mean, the tower. You know, it's a it's an achievement that towers over Christmas music to me. Like I I adore that music and and what it represented, and and uh, you know that was the first Charlie Brown Christmas special, and I mean, first Charlie Brown animated anything uh, that that reached the airwaves, and and you know, it it was so different uh, in the textures of that production and and the way that it it reaches the audience um and i don't i knew it was different as a child but i couldn't really perceive or articulate what that difference was it it, the rhythm of watching a charlie brown special um it didn't feel like you were watching you know anything else uh and it's because i guess the the way that they recorded the actors and the, the fact that the they weren't doing professional voice acting approach. They were doing just kind of the way kids talk, you know, like, or the way kids would do a, a classroom production and the way their voices kind of tumble over each other. And they, they don't even try to act like they're moving through a room and talking. They're just, just reading this thing out loud. It gives it such a charm. Um, and, uh, and then also the grownups, uh, Wah-wah. in the way that they, yeah, exactly. That, that I mean, that, has there ever been a funnier joke than that? Is that like the <laughs> single best gag ever? Uh, and then Vince Giraldi, I mean, that, the, it doesn't feel like the holidays until I hear that song and every time I hear, well, several of the songs on that, that album soundtrack, but it's uh, it's got such a, a kind of a, a warm embrace to it. And uh, uh, it's, very, it's very hushed in a way that uh, a lot of things aren't these days.
0: Right, it hits that melancholy note that we like so much, which is why Peanuts as a comic strip is so revolutionary. They're sort of depressed kids. Charlie's kind of a loser in a way, you know, and that's what makes it so identifiable. If you're on TV, you see the Hallmark Channel has a month of endless Christmas specials. They churn out TV Christmas movies like cookie cutters, and that's exactly what they are because they're all formulaic and the same. But the ones that are great that stand out are It's a Wonderful Life with this incredibly dark, You know, if this movie is despairing, the guy is trapped in this small town. All he wants to do is get out. And he's constantly foiled and has to stay and suck it up and help out, even though he'd rather get away into the big wide world. Charlie Brown Christmas. My God, the kids are kind of sad and quiet. He buys this miserable tree. And then they said, you know what? Let's have some kids sing songs off key and we'll have some (laughs) jazz tunes just to spice it up. That'll bring in the audience and we'll end by cold calling and reading out the gospel." You know, I mean, they don't mess around at all. That is just an amazingly revolutionary special. We take it for granted now, but it's so remarkable. And that music, of course, endures. That gets covered a lot. In fact, uh, Wynton Marsalis has a great album covering uh, songs by Vince Giraldi called Joe Cool's, Bl- Joe Cool's Blues, uh, yeah. which is really great. And he has a great Christmas album, Crescent City Christmas Card, I think is what it's called, uh, by Wynton Marsalis. But you can't go wrong with the original Vince Giraldi and a Charlie Brown Christmas.
1: Oh, it's so good! It's so good, and you know what strikes me you, as you as you're recapping the the uh, the combined plots of Charlie Brown Christmas and Its Wonderful Life is that it does sound so sad, and and you left out the suicide attempt and the failed angel. I mean, it's even worse.
0: Like, I mean,
1: it's just come on, you're not, you're not even getting there. Like and and we serve hard drinks for hard drinkers who want to get drunk fast. See, we got no time for characters. Like we don't wow. need no
0: characters to give the joint atmosphere. <laughs> but, okay. <laughs> um, and
1: and Uncle Uncle Billy, like, what come on, like keep an eye on the money, dude. I mean, like, like <laughs> I don't think this guy gets enough blame. I mean, like, you know, like we kind of glaze over everybody, you know, past the eggnog, everything's fine. I I want I want this guy, he's gotta get a beat down for that. I think that like this is a problem.
0: Well, and that brings me to one of my favorite Christmas songs of all time, a song that has become a standard. It's almost a rule that if you're going to record a Christmas album and you're a serious singer, you got to include this song. That would be Joni Mitchell and River. Uh, that came out in June of 1971 when I was looking at, you know, this arbitrary deadline you gave of 1970, I went to Stevie wonder and it's like, ah, someday a Christmas came out in 1967. Darn it. You know, and some other songs, but like Jose Feliciano's Feliz Navidad, that came out November of 1970. Boom. It's in there. Donny Hathaway's this Christmas, December, 1970, just made the cut. And there's Joni Mitchell's river off one of the greatest albums of all time. Blue which Rolling Stone just named the third greatest album of all time in their list of the 500 greatest albums. That was number three, well-deserved. Uh, it is the song river, which is as melancholy as it gets. She wishes you could just go on a frozen river and skate away, and get away, get out of here, you know, and, but it begins with, it's coming on Christmas. You know, and so it is a holiday song, and every artist covers that song. Anybody who's a real singer puts that on their Christmas album to the point where I saw an interviewer talking with Joni Mitchell, who's famously prickly, I would say. I don't think that's unfair. She oh, yeah. is a genius and she knows it and she wants the respect a genius deserves. And in fact, I'd say she's even more talented than she believes she is. That's how talented she is. But she was in this interview and the woman said, Oh, come on. I mean, even you must be getting kind of sick of hearing the river by all these different acts all the time. And Joni Mitchell said, It's called a standard. That used to be considered a good thing. (laughs) And I was like, nah, slap her down. You're right, it is a good thing. You write a song and everybody wants to include it. Yeah, they're gonna be hard pressed to match the original, but they try.
1: So now I'm thinking about this Christmas dinner party that we've assembled because if Bing Crosby, Charles Schulz, and Joni Mitchell, this triumvirate that have given us so much Christmas, that is the most miserable Christmas party you could possibly go to. <laughs> These are not happy people. There's some sweaters there, but they're not friendly. They're not warm. I don't know.
0: Yeah. Well, if you're not his kids, I think being Crosby is okay. And that would only be the first marriage. But uh, when I was looking <laughs> at all this stuff and trying to research and make sure I knew what was going on and try to think about all these Christmas songs, I also worked on my Christmas playlist, which I had to do. I, I, I moved them over onto uh, Spotify after years of just having on my own personal computer. So now, now they're available to the world. I got links on my, on my blog to all my Christmas playlists. But I stumbled upon a fact that I wasn't quite aware of, and that would be the greatest Christmas songwriter of all time. Now, maybe the greatest holiday songwriter is Irving Berlin. Because that guy guy turned him out for every holiday with, like, you know, rolling over in bed. But the greatest Christmas songwriter, the person who did better than anyone else, perhaps of writing definitive Christmas songs, is Johnny Marks. say that one more time, Johnny Johnny Marks, M-A-R-K-S. A a nice Jewish boy, like so many of the great Christmas songwriters. And Streisand and Neil Diamond have some of the best-selling Christmas albums of all time. Johnny Marks wrote wrote a Christmas song based on the, a pamphlet, a booklet written for Montgomery Ward by oh. his brother-in-law called Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. That's right. And he wrote that song, and of course Gene Autry took it to the top of the charts. Uh, but Johnny Marks wrote quite a few others. He wrote Rockin' Around the Christmas Tree for Brenda Lee. And then he did all the songs for some of the Rudolph TV specials, including the Rankin Bass, Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer. And that meant he also wrote A Holly Jolly Christmas, Silver and Gold, I heard, I heard the bells on Christmas day and I'm not done. He even wrote Chuck Berry's run Rudolph run. I mean, come on. <laughs> I thought Chuck Berry wrote Chuck Berry. <laughs> no, so did run. I. So did I. <laughs> he wrote, we're a couple of misfits. All the songs from, you know, that this early rank and bass specials, a lot of them are by him and all of them on Rudolph, the red nose reindeer. I mean, Rudolph, the red, Nosed rocking on the Christmas tree, Holly, Jolly Chris. Silver, oh my God. That's just, that's amazing. I couldn't find anyone else even close
1: yeah you're, you're absolutely right that's that's really really impressive and and they um they're so fun you know like uh rocking around the christmas tree when i was a kid i thought that was just awesome song like you know i used to like this is my jam like when i was like five or six years old i was like just the the the, the delivery of the song so many people have uh, they make it such a sly song um there's different types of tonalities, of course, to these Christmas songs. And, and last year, I think, was when we had a, kind of a Tempest in the Teapot with Baby It's Cold Outside, got to rethink because right. of uh,
0: hey, uh, see, the Me Too movement. And, she and, is fully consenting there, people. She is, she is down with the playfulness. Let's, yeah, let's just, exactly. Let's just assume that. She is flirting and having a good time and saying yes every step of the way. She exactly. Is not, she's not drugging her drink. They're just having fun. <laughs>
1: Yeah, say what's in this drink? Um, yeah, it's, it's a sly song, and and uh, and she gives as good as she gets, and and I'm not even trying to make a joke. And <laughs> um, and the best, best version that of
0: that, of course, that's a, that is a standard. It's been covered many times. The iconic version, the best version of all. Elf. Uh well, it's adorable, but no, I got to go with Ray Charles and Betty Carter. <laughs> yeah, yeah.
1: I just wanted to see if I can just throw you no, off no, seconds. that's
0: no. I mean, oh, well, what's that song? Uh, uh, Zoe Deschanel and and uh, Joseph Gordon Levitt who sadly is married now, uh, they do it on a song, <laughs> What Do You Do in New Year's Eve. Uh, I think they did that online, this adorable little ukulele dilette, duet. Yeah. I listen to it every year. It's just great. So she's yeah. a charmer. And I think she and him, A Very Merry Christmas by her and M. Ward, I think that's a terrific Christmas album. I think that's yeah. really a great one. She has a, a gossamer
1: quality to her voice that really lends itself to the holiday kind of uh, songbook, I think. and You know what? I... I, I i've seen elf many many times like uh a lot of people have and um john favreau who directed it um he used to do screenings of it at the arrow and i would interview him on stage there was like three different uh-huh. christmases um where uh i was there doing that with him and and uh, it was so much fun to see that movie over and over and i, I can't speak highly enough about it it's a charming um, movie. It's, it's really, and I love, and I love, um, the fact that it was filmed a, a good portion of that was filmed at a home for the mentally insane, or an ins- a facility for the, uh, mentally insane. It was a, uh, uh in, uh, I want to say it was Canada, but I'm not sure about that, but, uh, Favreau tells a story. It's a hysterical story that, you know, uh, Will Ferrell's wearing the suit and running around this place, and that like people are (laughs) patients there are seeing him and probably wondering if they really are seeing him. You know, Uh, it just adds a whole extra layer of the absurd to that that movie. But uh, look how many people in that movie got bigger after. I mean, Will Ferrell got much bigger after. Zoe Dachanel got much bigger after. Uh, uh, Peter Dinklage got much bigger after. Uh, There's, you know, it goes on and on. And John Favreau. And John Favreau, he got much bigger after that.
0: Well, that brings, that, that reminds me of a story my mom would tell if she was in the room right now. She's in the other room while I record this. But that <laughs> reminds me, when I was a little kid, uh, like, I don't know, eight or six, uh, I was a really cute kid, I peaked very early blonde hair blue eyes angelic little boy uh, i was I, I looked much younger than i was i could have done tv commercials you know at 10 it sounds I like look, you're
1: describing yourself right now
0: yeah at 10 i looked 6 seriously but I, <laughs> I was i was pretty smart so i i could have you know so i was primed for tv commercials sadly i lived in florida but a cute adorable little kid believe me i'm not talking about myself today but blonde hair <laughs> blue eyes little angelic boy and i was dressed up for christmas mom loved to do costumes and i i was an angel I had the wings, the thing, and they went down, we went around like a school group of kids went around nursing homes and we went to two or three nursing homes and went there. And I think we sang a few carols or something and the old people were brought out and they all smiled and it was lovely. One old person couldn't come out of their room. And uh, one of the nurses or aides said, Oh, he's so adorable. Can I bring him to just visit her and say hello? And Mama said, Oh, of course. And she takes me into this room. That's, basically in in darkness, there's one little light by the bedside table and there's a lovely little old lady in her 80s or 90, I don't know how old she is, a and little old lady who's sort of sleeping in her bedroom. The lights are all down low and the nurse puts me on the edge of the bed sitting there. I've got my halo, my angel's wings, my blonde hair, my little boy and she sort of gently wakes up the woman and she wakes up and sees an angel on the edge of her bed. It's just like, oh, my. a moment of, and then it's like, oh, this is a little boy. It's like, oh, my God, is this it? Is this it? Am I done? <laughs> <laughs> we, we meant it to be nice, but oh, not so much. So maybe uh, Will Ferrell and I have something in common. She thought, oh, well, okay, this looks okay. I'm seeing an angel. <laughs> it could be worse. And he
1: was singing the last Noel. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> Nice. That's good. I like that. That's a really touching story. Um, what part of Florida, by the way, was that
0: I was, I was born in Bermuda and I grew up in Pompano and Fort Lauderdale, Florida wow, you were born in
1: Bermuda, I didn't know that.
0: I'm a British subject, colonial born, that used to include half the world. Half the world would be a British subject, colonial born, but now it's reduced to a very few small places left in the world like Bermuda. And of course, Bermuda, uh, you know, being a part of the UK and the British empire, that's where our modern idea of Christmas sprang from, thanks to Charles Dickens and A Christmas Carol and a lot of the other Christmas stories he wrote. I actually just saw a new version of a Christmas Carol starring Jefferson Mays, uh, which is an uh, it was a one man show though with lots of special effects and stuff. It's it's different enough from the Patrick Stewart uh, one man a Christmas Carol, which both Jeff and I have seen and remember as one of the great theatrical experiences of our lives, not to put too, not to put too much a thing on it. So I kind of was a little resistant to seeing someone else try and do it, but Jefferson Mays doesn't there's sets and there's sound effects and all this stuff. So it feels different enough. He's still doing everything on his own, but it feels different enough that it really works. And it's, it's, a great, it's a great thing, and it also benefits local theater companies. So part of the proceeds will go to your local theater company. So if you're interested at all, you look up A Christmas Carol online, and you can check out the Jefferson Mays one. And if you do watch it, it's quite good. It's gotten great reviews, and you will be donating money to a local theater company. It was shot in New York City at United Palace, which is this old movie palace that is sort of let run down and it remains that way, but they screen movies there and have events there. It's a community space, but they let it have its faded grandeur. I've gone to see movies there like uh, The Sound of Music and stuff like that. It's a great big space. He's all alone. There's no audience. They just filmed it a few weeks ago but it's really well shot. It's directed by Michael Arden, a theater director. They made really good choices. They never pretend it's not a stage production, but they will do certain things with the camera and cut in close to times. So it's a really good version of A Christmas Carol, and it uses great music. It uses the music of Sufjan Stevens, one of the one of my favorite acts around for the last 20 years. And yeah. he has done a string of EPs of Christmas music that are just remarkable. And they use a fair number of those songs in the background and one very prominently in the middle of the show and then at the end. So a uh, great taste in music and, and a good show and it benefits local theater companies. So keep that in mind if you're interested.
1: Nice. That's really nice. Um, you know, jumping back to Rudolph for a second, um, that was a number one hit. Uh, in 1949, and um, Gene Autry. Now, I I just wanted to ask you about this. How interested are you in Gene Autry as a figure in popular culture? Because here's a guy, he's like uh, the first multimedia star in a way. Like, I mean, he had like a hit TV show. He had big movies, a number one hit
0: uh, on the radio with Rudolph, kind of an unlikely one, coming from a
1: department store.
0: It's merchandise. It's product placement. It's just something created by a company to to promote as a giveaway at the store. That's what kind of makes Rudolph kind of amazing and interesting. He's also Rudolph is the first gig worker. You know what? He, he just shows up. He has to even bring his own equipment, his own safety equipment. You know? <laughs> there's no talk about a long term yeah sure you can you can work tonight. You know, That's there awesome. he is like an Uber driver. Just yeah. wait to help Santa out at the last minute.
1: Yeah, he's really, it's a good point. And I mean, and I hadn't really thought of this before, but he's sort of the Geico caveman of (laughs) 1949. Like, I mean, he's he's the commercial that went much, much further than anyone anticipated.
0: Gene Autry is a fascinating character. You compare him to, say, Roy Rogers. Roy Rogers is boring. Gene Autry yeah. is really, really interesting. He is a very smart guy, very good multimedia artist. I'm always wary when people talk about the first this or that. You know, they always yeah. say the the first real star. They always say that about someone in the 1800s. Like, ah, there's always somebody earlier than yeah, that. Yeah, sure, sure. Uh, but he is he is a real talent. He wrote a lot of his songs. He didn't write Rudolph the Red-Nosed Reindeer, but he wrote a lot of his other songs. And yeah. he and he knew what he was doing. You know, he yeah. didn't mess around. He did he, TV, the film, the B-movies, the, the music, uh, he, he, every step of the way, he's a really smart businessman. I think Bing Crosby is probably the biggest star of all time because mm-hmm. he is so successful in so many genres, kind of right. like Gene Autry. But Bing Crosby was the biggest movie star in the world for sure. a number of years in a row. He was the biggest movie star in the world, the biggest box office draw. Then he was the biggest recording artist in the right. world. Meaning it's like you're you're Michael Jackson and you're Bill Cosby. You know, you got the number one show and you got them. But he was also a huge radio star. I won't say he was number one, but he was a big radio draw. And then, which was equivalent to television today. And like Gene Autry, he was very innovative. He came up with recording shows in advance. You know, having yeah. tape recording so that you could record your show and not have to do a live huge innovation. Uh, so he did that on radio, a big trailblazer, a big star. And then he was big in TV. His yeah. annual holiday specials really were a mainstay of television. So uh, very few people have been that big in that many different areas like Bing yeah. Crosby. Maybe Sinatra.
1: What. Maybe Sinatra. Uh, and, and Bing also had that great, you know, sort of uh, business acumen too, uh, you know, and. Yeah. and, and uh, like Gene Autry. And exactly, Gene Autry, has, you know, owning the California Angels and many, many, many other things as well. But uh, with uh, with Bing, you know, you listen to he 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 never was afraid to let his uh, his uh, different pursuits kind of cross over into each other. I mean, the guy was all about uh, cross media stuff. I mean, you look at when he sings uh, "San Fernando Valley," a song about. He's selling real estate, basically, in a song. <laughs> yeah, like he's the Sand- uh, make the San Fernando Valley my home, and he's like he's talking about places you can buy and stuff. And like the guy started Del Mar, basically the, the, <laughs> the racetrack, and then he sings about it, and then he does a TV special about it, and then it's in a movie. And I'm like, man, this guy is working it. He's he's like the Steve Harvey of of, <laughs> of argyle sweaters.
0: Yeah, no, uh, no, Elvis and and Frankie are not even close. Uh, they both well, had thought, success, they both had success in movies, but they were. Uh, I mean, Frank Sinatra true. was never a big movie star. No, no, and, no. I mean, he, that's, uh, yeah, he won an Oscar, but obviously oh, yeah. he wasn't. He wasn't so a, they, a box office guy. Right. You're exactly. Right. And Elvis had some hits, but not not. He could have been better, but of course, we can all blame the Colonel. Now yeah. that brings us to a point where if you say, who is a bigger star? Who's this, that that's all, sure. that's all a matter of opinion. And nobody can have a wrong opinion about a Christmas song. You love a song. You hate a song. Right. Please. We're not trying to, we're not trying to tell you you're wrong. There's no such thing. If you're, parents played an album every year you may be sick of it but you'll also love it and when you hear it it's going to have an emotional impact for you so are there some christmas songs that you hate which are the ones i mean i'm not talking about grandma got run over by a reindeer or the christmas dogs or whatever but i'm saying a song that's really played and people like you're like oh please not that song
1: oh yeah you know there are a few
0: you know um
1: and i i like your the the caveat you make and and the thing is is that people aren't wrong you're right there people aren't wrong but I am right.
0: (laughs) While other people can't be wrong, I can't be wrong. Um, No, people can have a wrong opinion. You know, someone might say, oh, the greatest gangster film of all time is, you know, whatever. You're like, no. (laughs) They can be wrong. But when it talks about a Christmas music, that's sort of an emotional reaction. Tell me, what are we all wrong about? What song is dreadful that people should stop listening to?
1: Well, you know, every every year when I hear Paul McCartney... Oh,
0: I know, exactly. You know, uh,
1: simply having... Uh, and I'm out. I like oh. I just I just want
0: to throttle him. I I, I love I, Paul McCartney. I love, I love Paul
1: McCartney,
0: not that song. Oh, it's and like John. I'm like Paul, John has lapped you. You really need to step up <laughs> and come up with another Christmas song. You need to step it up, dude. I mean, John John wasn't him. even trying and he oh. killed you. Oh, oh no. And, and wonderful Christmas time, he's not even trying there. Da, 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 da. You know, come on. The singing it's, frogs thing was better.
1: Yeah, It no, sounds that's... like the thing when you first buy a Casio keyboard and you take <laughs> it out of the box and you turn it on, it sounds like the first sound it makes
0: <laughs> and is the that other, song. The other one for me is Elton John's Step Into Christmas. I just get bored by it before it's even halfway through. I forgot that was even a song. Step into Christmas, step, you know, that one. Yeah, I don't like it. Yeah, that. no, that's... I'm against know, it. And there's, it's hard not to get sick of them because you hear them everywhere. They're on the radio, they're on TV, but... The really great ones, you know, they're, they're so enduring because they're so malleable. You hear 10 versions of, of some songs and you, you don't get sick of it because they're slightly different. They're really well done. You know, there are Christmas reggae albums, Christmas, you know, Mambo albums, Christmas, you know, spiritual. You know, it doesn't matter. They can be twisted and turned into every possible uh, into every possible shape. But when when you don't like him, you don't like him. And people cover Wonderful Christmas Time, which I think, really? (laughs) (laughs) And and Paul McCartney, I mean, I love him more than John. I think he had a better solo career even up to 1980 when, unfortunately, John was taken away from us, unfortunately. But he's a great artist. I always felt like he needed a little more support because John was so cool. Uh, Ringo was lovable and George was above us all spiritually. So he didn't need our affection. Uh, But so poor Paul, desperate for approval. I felt like I wanted to give it to him.
1: Yeah, yeah, no, I, I agree. Yeah, I, I, have, I, I have a real soft spot for Paul and his music and, and think that somehow, oddly, he's underrated, which is really difficult when you're a Beatle. Um, <laughs> yeah, he's... And I've always felt for George, like, how what are the odds that you're going to finish, you're going to be the third best songwriter in the room? Like, <laughs> what the hell, dude? Like, this guy would have been, you know, if he'd been in, in his own town, he would have had a career, you know, like, he would have been, okay, well, anyway. That's and if you day. like
0: Christmas bootlegs, you know, the bootleg probably began with Bob Dylan. I think that was the first famous bootleg where they yeah. were starting to bootleg Bob Dylan music. If you love Christmas bootlegs, the Beatles would put out records for their fans every year. And oh, they'd have, yeah. hey, kids, I'd love it to hear from you, John Paul, George And they would goof around for a minute and then sing something haphazardly. And it's just, if you like the Beatles, it's great stuff. You know, you just yeah. can't get enough of it. Hearing them goof around, it's just a, it's just a treat.
1: The Beatles fan club sort of Christmas greetings, like uh, weren't they weren't they uh, like forty fives that they sent out to yeah, fan clubs? Yeah, ex- exactly. Uh, the toppermost of the poppermost years. That was the uh, when they were still cute and fun. Uh,
0: and if and if you were a kid, you were waiting for that. You know, you were waiting for that album and ended up waiting for that forty five to pop in the mail. It was very exciting. Was there an album or a Christmas album that you ever got, or was there a Christmas gift you got of a music that you were super excited by?
1: Well, you know, the Christmas um, for me, it's the the records that my my great aunt, I was, I was raised in South Florida, uh, in a retirement community. I was the only kid in the neighborhood where I lived, which, one? um, and, uh, uh, my, my, I was raised by my great aunt and her husband, my great uncle, my, um, grand, grandfather on my mother's side, sister. And it's her records that matter to me that, that I kind of, um, I, uh, idealize and, and those are the ones that have magic. So those uh, this is the Nat King Cole record album, the, mm-hmm. the uh, you know, the Johnny Mathis and Bing. I mean, Bing was just, was a huge figure in my childhood. I mean, Bing Crosby could do no wrong um, in the household where I was at. And it's funny it, it, because a neighbor I went to the school, elementary school where other kids didn't have the kind of upbringing I had, didn't have the same home <clears throat> environment. And it was really hard for me to communicate with them. They'd be talking like about, like, you know, the uh, I don't know, Sha Na and Kiss. <laughs> and, and you're like, I who's have, on first? <laughs> and I'd be having opinions about Judy Garland and uh, yeah, talking about uh, uh, W. C. Fields and like it's it was it made for a lot of hijinks. Let me tell you, it was really fun. But um, even back then, uh, there were certain songs that just powerfully affected me emotionally at Christmas. And one of them um, is the Judy Garland song "Have Yourself a Merry Little Christmas." That is one of the most, um, I think, uh, emotion-rich recordings for me. That that uh, of any song in any season.
0: Well, you've seen the film, I'm sure. Uh, Meet Me in St. Louis. That's where it was written for and came from. Yeah, and it's a it's a it's a weird little scene. I'm actually not a big fan of that film. Uh, Vincent Minnelli has made some good movies. I'm not a big fan of him as a director, uh, although he did director well in the clock, but she's a tremendous talent. Of course, that goes without saying. And they made this movie together and they fell in love and got married and had a daughter, uh, you know, Liza Minnelli. But in that movie, she sings how Judy Garland sings this song, you know, she's just weeping uncontrollably, kind of stealing the scene almost from Judy Garland, (laughs) which is not fair. She did get a little Oscar for it, but it's a, it's a, crazy heart-wrenching scene but that's one of the magic things about judy garland she is so young when she's doing that i mean how young was she when she recorded that movie i mean she was uh, born in 1922 and meet me saint louis she was about 22 years old yes. 21 she sounds like she's got the weight of the world on her shoulders she knows everything in the life that could be possibly go wrong she sounds so mature and 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 knowing and wise and heartbroken that you just can't believe it's this young person doing it. She does it in the Mickey and Judy movies all the time. You know, she just sings, she's a kid. Hey, Mickey, let's go out. Let's put on a show. And then she sings a song and you're thinking, Oh my God, Yeah, (laughs) she, she is just one of the great talents of all time. No doubt about it.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I didn't, as a kid, I didn't have snowmen, but I would go outside
0: whenever I would hear that song and I would just run around and
1: I would just, run into the palm trees
0: (laughs) well you know i get emotional hearing (laughs) happy christmas war is over and i I, and i do get emotional when i hear band-aids do they know it's christmas for a weird obnoxious way just in the sense of like we're still listening to these songs you know war is over if you want it yeah not yet apparently and you know feed the world yeah we could you know and i just makes my blood boil that we're still listening to that song and people listen to it and go oh isn't that nice i'm like no you should <laughs> not be listening to the song you should be feeding people and i know ethiopia wasn't a famine it was the government i don't care <laughs> people should not yeah. go hungry. you know that's one reason that song that record is so great is you got all these great pop stars and you know you got all these different voices and then you have bono who didn't even want to sing the line coming in and saying you know look at all these starving people he says well tonight thank god it's them instead of you And you're like yeah. yes exactly that's a christmas sentiment thank god it's them instead of you you don't want them to be starving but you should be glad you're not that's and right. uh, it really makes it, as the years go on i get more and more emotional about it but probably the one song that really kind of moves me the most is darling love singing christmas baby please come home And it's not just because it's a great Christmas song and I've interviewed her and I've seen her, you know, she's just sort of the voice of Christmas in a way, in some ways. It's because I watched her do it year after year on the David Letterman show. And now Ah. she does it on The View. And it's been 30 years where at Christmas time, like uh, Evan said at the top of the show, you know, you've got these traditions. And one of my traditions is always making sure uh, even if I'm traveling, I'll say, I'm traveling down for Christmas. I'll say, you got to record Letterman because I'm on the road and I can't record it. You have to record it. I want to watch. They're like, oh, what? I'm like, no, you have to record it. And so every year, no matter where I am, I watch her sing that on Letterman. And now on The View, it's usually the last show right before Christmas, the last live new show. So you can look at Christmases on Friday. It might be the Friday before. Maybe they'll have a new episode Monday or Tuesday. You got to check. And then you'll see her sing that song. And as it accumulates over the years, the power of it just becomes more and more. And, you know, she's in her 70s or whatever. She sounds great <laughs> and she's still belting it out. It's just kind of amazing.
1: You know what? Um, as you say that, it makes me think with, uh, with her, in the end, the love you tape is <laughs> equal to the love you make.
0: No wonder you get along with my co-host, Sperling. He loves a good bad joke. <laughs> hey, that's a great bad joke. That's a great bad joke. <laughs> Well, this
1: is fantastic. Um, I think we're, we've probably exhausted our Christmas conversation for this moment. That's where I, you're wrong. I think. <laughs> well, will you do me a favor? Will you come back and can we finish this next time? Sure. Because we have a, uh, we're going to have a Christmas guest with us. The oh. author of Holly Jolly, Mr. Mark Vogler, is going to join us uh, next time around, next week, one week from today. So, uh, Michael, if you can join us again, do you want to tr- do it again? Oh, that'd be terrific. Fantastic. Well, Mr. Michael Giltz, thank you for joining us. This is. Do you want to stick around for the after party?
0: Can I? The after after party. Evan, do you think? Absolutely, it wouldn't be the same without him. Oh, so. All right. Am I the first guest to walk to the couch? This is. We we I didn't even have so, yeah. a couch until now. So oh, yes, sweet. you're in. Like, all right, this is great. Okay, I'm I'm all for it. Okay, cool. Okay, What's
1: uh, We gotta, uh, Okay, now they're locking the front door. Okay, all right. So <laughs> you're in the party. Uh, have a drink.
0: I am. I got some eggnog right here. I don't know if you can hear me taking sips during the show, but I wasn't waiting for the Christmas cheer. <laughs> I love it, um Evan. So, I'm, I'm sorry you didn't jump in. I want to know what Evan's thinking. What's the first thing you were dying to say while you were listening? So actually, there's two songs that I can't stand every year. One is, <laughs> one is "Bring the Hate."
1: One is Brenda Lee's "Rocking Around the Christmas Tree." <laughs> oh, I don't like her voice, man. It just sounds right. a little too good for me. Yeah. Um, and then the other one is, I mean, granted, this isn't necessarily like a classic Christmas song, but the Hippopotamus for Christmas. Like, oh, yeah.
0: You... No, that, yeah. Novelty numbers are not not high on my list.
1: Yeah, that's an instant skip for me. Um, <laughs> I've gone back and forth
0: on the uh, Eartha Kit. Where, where where are you now on that? Earth Kit? Eartha Kitt? Santa Kit, Baby. Uh, Santa Baby. Oh, yeah. That's really low on my list, too. Well, I like the song. It's a great record. Madonna was very smart to cover it. I think that was on a very special Christmas, one of the Uh, new era of Christmas albums, you know, following on Phil Spector. There was a new generation spurred on by A Very Special Christmas. But uh, I do do like that song, but it's so familiar and it's played so much. Its appeal has sort of dimmed. My go-to song in that vein is Pearl Bailey singing Five Pound Box of Money where she says, ask Santa Claus to give her a, a, a five-pound box of money. Come on, Santa. <laughs> it's, it's a great song. You Google that, or if you go to my Spotify playlist, you can find them. Uh, it's just a very, very funny song, and uh, I can't get enough of it. You know, this is,
1: this is kind of a random thing, but Pearl Bailey did um, an appearance on the Andy Williams show, and if you Google Andy Williams and Pearl Bailey, it, it should pop right up. Uh, and it's so funny because she – just has no respect for him and just sort of slaps him down like like uh, um, she's so, she treats him like he's just the ultimate square, and he, she she's looking at him like really, and it right? Is, <laughs> it's so damn funny, and it happened a lot to Andy Williams. Look, uh, uh, if you uh, look I got Andy.
0: it up. I'm gonna watch it. It's got a hundred thousand views. I'm imagining this is it. They're sitting in chairs looking at That's each it. other, and oh,
1: she's I- just she's just so amused by him and oh. dismissive and. It happens to him a lot because there's another one. If you look, Andy Williams, one of the great Christmas singers ever. Um, but also, and who's worn a sweater like that man wore that sweater? Him and Perry Como, right neck and neck. <laughs> That's funny. Neck and neck. I like it. Yeah. the neck and neck. Um, they, uh, there's one where Andy Williams and Tony Bennett comes on. And this is when Tony Bennett has uh, his big success with uh, Left My Heart in San Francisco. It's right around that time. And so they take turns doing songs, uh, doing a little medley of city songs, like uh, uh, in New York and... Bottom in New York or something. Yeah. And, um, and they, they, then there's a part where you can see Tony Bennett looks confused because Andy Williams takes... I left my heart in San Francisco. He, he wasn't <laughs> supposed to. And, and you look at Tony Bennett's face and he's not happy. And, he, and you can see him, he kind of... He moves his... Uh, chin because he's kind of uh, seems to be like suggesting Andy's missing the timing and then he steps up and he puts his hand on his chest and, and just takes over the song and says no stop and just and and hits the big note and it's hysterical it is hysterical it's like a it's a it's a mic drop moment uh and poor Andy Williams I uh, and there's a there's one last one, sorry, there's one more with him and Jerry Lewis, Andy Williams and Jerry Lewis, look that one up.
0: Hey, ladies! And in, the,
1: and in the middle of it, Jerry looks at him and he goes, oh, look at that, you gave them something, you moved your throat, I could see that. You're like, oh, you're really putting yourself out there for these people. <laughs> do, you, do, you, do, you, do you sleep at night? Do you cash these checks? I mean, it, I've never seen someone take so much abuse on their own show. As Andy Williams, I don't. It's not the sure most what wonderful time
0: of the year when he does no guests and he gets to do the show all by himself. I guess
1: I think he just cries and cried and cried at <laughs> all night all the way to the bank. Well, okay, one last tangent. Now stop. The I did an interview with Barry Manilow. I went to. I flew to him. for the LA Times. I did a story on Barry Manilow where I met Barry Manilow in Palm Springs where he lives, and I flew with him on his little private uh, plane to Vegas where he played a show. And then we flew back and he does it every day. And I said, so day in the life of Barry Manilow, the daily commute. And um, I was really excited about doing the story. And it, the story took kind of a weird turn because I made him cry on the way there. And then it, I didn't mean to, I hurt his feelings and then- You hurt his
0: feelings, good heavens. I did, I did. I, I
1: I asked him this question that was too intense, too early in the interview. I should wait till after the concert, like, Cause like when he started crying, I'm like, Oh my God, dude, you got, you got a show tonight. Like you got to pull it together. Like the question I asked was um, when you, your head hits the pillow at night is your last thought, all the fans that cheer your name, or is your last thought, all the reviews that you've read, oh. you know, what sticks with you mm-hmm. the most? Is it, is it, is it the good or is it the, you know, half if half full just starts bawling. And I and it says, you don't know what it's like to be Barry Man and I'm like, oh my lord, I I I really, really didn't mean to to do that. Um he later sent me a note after it appeared in the story, like it was the salutation was you rude fuck. That was the beginning <laughs> of the letter. I'm not joking. I'm not joking. I have the letter. I'll show it to you. you. That's gonna be um, worth
0: something someday. <laughs> yeah, and it was it was
1: awesome. Um but uh uh, the reason I bring this up is I was asking him about, we were talking about the 60s. Uh, right after that, I tried to reel it back. Okay, well, tell me about your influence. Tell me about your influences. Okay, so in the 60s, for instance, who, who to you would be the essential artist of the 60s? Now, Michael, if I said to anybody... they are going to do the Beatles. You, you, who's There's the essential a million artist things you can say, yeah. You, you could say Beatles. Some people say Hendrix. Some people say Dylan. Some people... You know
0: Streisand. I don't know. There's a list. A million options, right? Barry Manilow's answer was Andy Williams. Oh, fascinating. Did,
1: why? Uh, he said he goes. It speaks for itself. You know, the <laughs> body of work. It just speaks for itself. So in the story, and this this is this upset him as well. I'm told uh, is that I said meet Barry Manilow. Uh, he didn't really have his 60s. He took two and went straight to the 70s. <laughs>
0: <laughs> well, Barry Manlow has a couple great albums. He has 2AM Paradise Cafe, sort of a jazzy album. With, he duetted with Mel Torme. He has Night Songs and a new album that just came out this year, Night Songs 2, uh, which, you know, he's written a lot of hit songs. And yeah. these are albums where he's mostly covering other people. I never would have expected him to be a good interpreter of other people. Yeah. But when he's away from... Uh, uh the, the big pop songs and the big, you know, chord change, you know, I write this, which he didn't write that song. Uh, <laughs> he, he's, he's done some, he's got a handful of very good albums. So, you know, an interesting career and a, and a, a man who finally came out. Uh, yeah. All these years later when it was, you know, people kind of assumed or thought kind of like Johnny Mathis, a big Christmas figure who came out, I think, in the 70s and then went right back in the closet because he received so many vehement death threats and so much blowback and so intense hatred for coming out that he just like, well, OK, never mind. <laughs> I mean, you know, he has never mentioned it again, really. I mean, it was really bad. It was scary. Uh, That's you, really yeah. strange. That's yeah, really and, strange.
1: I was not aware of that. You probably
0: weren't aware he was gay, right? No, or at least not Chances openly are gay. Are I wasn't. But if you listen to his album, uh, his classic Christmas album, you know, with "Winter Wonderland" as the opening song, it's kind of oh, yeah. coming out even right there. Can you say it's the new bird here today? <laughs> and, but if you actually really listen to the song. It's a, kind of a weird moment. And a lot of the great Christmas songs have weird little details. And that song has this bouncy course. And then suddenly there's a, a, a break, a bridge that goes yeah. over the ground lies a mantle of white. And there's this sort of this weird harp-like sonic thing that sounds like you're going into a flashback or something like yeah. in a movie or TV show. It's this weird interlude. And you're like, well, that's odd. And then it goes, da da-da-da. Da-da. But then they go into the psychedelic moment again. It's just, you know, when you start to listen to them, these songs... They they last for a reason. They've got weird little sonic details in them. There's something about them that, you know, keeps your interest even after you've heard them a hundred times.
1: Yeah. I think that's also maybe the sound of like when you're slipping into hypothermia, like uh, you know, like <laughs> you lay down in the that's, snow. I think I, there's that swirl. I'll just rest swirl. for a
0: minute. I'll just, I'll just sleep. It'll be okay. And there's a
1: swirling, swirling, swirling. That, that's usually, it doesn't end well. That doesn't end well after that. You know, I sat next to Johnny Mathis at Ray Charles's funeral. Oh,
0: I'll never forget how great
1: Johnny Mathis looked. Oh,
0: like, yeah. Johnny surgeon. Mathis looks great. He had man. some good. He had some good surgeons on tap. Yeah. The uh, yeah, you know, I, I pissed off Ron Howard, but that's a story for another day. Oh, <laughs> for next week, that's hard to do. We, we, <laughs> it was indeed. What's that, Evan? I said we could keep that for next week when we talk about Santos and we can talk <laughs> about Ron Howard's The Grinch, and you can bring that up. Oh, oh gosh, I'd rather not bring up the I think, Oh god. Boy, you know, I love Ron
1: Howard as a person and I, I I admire him and I respect him. but, Man, I can't stand that movie. No,
0: no, that's that's not a good one. That's yeah. not an that's I not his Tombstone. It was
1: one of the 25 biggest movies uh, in box office at one point. I remember seeing that it, I'm sure it's not obviously anymore, but it uh I remember being shocked and staggered by that. <laughs>
0: That's a powerful story. All those TV specials should remain 22-minute shorts. Yeah. You really should not be dragging out a picture book to feature film length. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Polar Express, next stop, Polar Express. <laughs> That's a good Christmas album. There's a Liam Neeson narration of the Polar Express. It's like 20, 18 minutes long. It's really, really? charming, really good.
1: Wow. Is it, does, he sound like, does he do it like in the Taken voice? <laughs> <laughs> I don't think it's that aggressive. Because that would just be awesome. <laughs> uh, hot chocolate you know like some, somebody gets scalded as they're uh, trying to fight with uh, Liam Mason over the hot
0: chocolate so do we do a sing along now is that it are we well you guys start humming and uh,
1: la, 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 we'll do the Vinstral, la, 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 the outro la, 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 no well, we la, la, la. need one last bit of business is we need to do the essential shelf uh,
0: oh cool and uh, I love this because there's so much great stuff and I, I'm glad people are not obsessed with what came out this week, you know, or what new show is on Netflix. You know what? No, there's a gazillion great TV shows. There's no reason you shouldn't binge watch the Mary Tyler Moore show. There's no reason not to binge watch, you know, uh, police squad, though that's not even available to stream right now. So I'd love this section of your show. So tell us, what should we be reading this week? Well, this week's, uh,
1: the choice for essential shelf is uh, a very, very important book, a landmark comics, uh, comic from the 1980s art spiegelman's mouse which is a departure because we've gone uh, into the direction of a lot of superhero stuff we've had a lot of uh kind of uh intense action adventure comics and mouse is a very very different creation and and uh it's a book that would win uh a pulitzer prize it's a book that changed the way a lot of people perceived comics and it was chosen again and again and again to all the lists that you see that talk about the, the, the peak masterpiece additions to this medium. And uh, Art Spiegelman tells a couple stories in it. One uh, is the story of his uh, grandparents surviving um, the Holocaust and how they did so trying to escape Nazi Germany and concentration camps. And the, the Jews are portrayed as mice in the, in the book. Nazis are cats, Americans are dogs. Uh, there's- It's so good. There's sort of an Orwellian Animal Farm kind of look at uh, humanity in in war, and it, it's it's interesting too, isn't it, Michael? That by by taking that step of turning everybody into anthropomorphic animals, uh, it, it really adds a lot of distance to the story, but it also it helps you with the horror of the the story. You know, it helps you kind of take it in almost like a fable, in addition to the the kind of powerful reality of
0: it. It, would be, it wouldn't work if it was just set in the Holocaust and you were watching mice and cats and dogs. It would make it sort of reductive and reduce everybody to a race. Um, but because it's also about the struggle to tell the story and about his relationship with his grandfather and his struggles to deal with that and the flashes back and forth, it, it, it makes it not so simplified. You know, it makes, it's such a complex book and it's so rich that if that was alone it would just be like eh, you know but because there's so many layers to it that sort of element helps you so immediately understand the relationship between them without reducing them to just being mice or cats so or or you know or dogs so it really works great on so many levels it's i mean he's there over his you know panel trying to write it during the during the book itself You know, you see him struggling. Oh, this is crap. This will never work. So that that's what rescues it again. And again, the struggle just to tell the story is so hard that you don't feel like you took an easy out by saying, Oh, I'll make us mice and them cats. You know, it sounds very simple and clever at that level, but it really does. And it does help you deal with the horror of it because it's really hard to deal with.
1: Yeah. And, um, elements of the story that show art and his grandfather, the struggle they have with each other and the uh, generational perceptions and, and, uh, just the angst uh, that it goes with putting this story down on the page, as you say. And it really, um, it telescopes the story in in other directions, unexpected directions, and um, the artwork as well. It has a really stark look to it. It's black and white. It was drawn small. Most comic book art is drawn on a large page and reduced during the publishing process to the size that people see it. You know, most artists draw panels on larger paper than the paper that the reader is reading them on. Not mm-hmm. so with mouse. It was, it was drawn almost at the same size as the book, which is very, very small and intricate and kind of blows my mind that that could even be done because of the, the amount of detail. Um, it's a book that, you know, most Holocaust stories make you lean back. Uh, this is one that makes you lean forward. Uh, you, you go into the story and, and you want to know more about it. And it's a, it's, a, it's a masterpiece and it's it's emotional and evocative and uh, it belongs on any essential shelf of, of graphic of, novels. And,
0: and of most tellingly, perhaps, it could only be done as a graphic novel. I mean, right. this is not something that should be turned into a film or could have been prose. This story could only been told this way in a graphic novel and it doesn't work in any other medium. And that's what makes it so special.
1: Yeah, along with uh, say Watchmen and uh, you know The Dark Knight uh, Returns, it's it's one of the signature uh, books of the '80s, but also one of the signature books of the medium because of the the very thing that Michael's talking about is that all three of those are so inherent to uh, the language, uh, the story, and and the the presentation are so uh, native to the medium that they really sort of take advantage of its its strengths in a way that could not be done in film uh, or animation or or uh, any other medium uh, in quite the same way, so. And of course, when I say grandfather, I'm using the term loosely because I mean father.
0: Oh, uh, <laughs> oh that's right, yeah, I, I was just echoing you. I, I couldn't remember, but you're right. It's, uh, yeah, uh, he's, uh,
1: the story's about his father and, and, uh, uh, and escaping
0: the terrors of
1: Nazi Germany.
0: I think part of that is, we think of it as so far in the past, you can't think of it being his father. We know Art Spiegelman is, you know, an older person now, and he wrote yeah. it in the 80s. But still, you think of the Holocaust as so distant that you just think, oh, it must be his grandfather. Obviously, it couldn't yeah. be that close to him. But no, it was his dad. You're right. It's
1: kind of amazing.
0: Um, you know, back when we were, you know, well, when I first came to California
1: and started writing for the L.A. Times back in 93, I was an intern and I was making not much money uh when i got my third check though i went to a comic book store in newport beach and i bought a framed litho of mouse by art spiegelman and and, uh, i still have it to this day but i'll tell you it's tough because it's two mice and they're in a mouse trap and there's a huge swastika behind them and only after buying it and getting it home did i realize that it does require me to put a swastika on the wall. Like, (laughs) you know, like, and people walk into your house and if they don't really know what it is, it says mousetrap.
0: And, you know, so it's a... And is it something you want to look at every day? Because sometimes it's a great work of art, but like, yeah, I don't know if I want Guernica on my wall. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. So
1: uh, I I have a little mixed reaction to that. So it's in the closet if you ever want to borrow it. Uh, It's really good. Uh,
0: But it's a great piece to have.
1: It, it's funny, when I had it was, uh, that was my first grown-up job, and my, one of my first grown-up checks, and the first thing I wanted to do was buy a piece of grown-up comic book art, which is kind of a mixed message, uh, <laughs> but uh, it does tell you how powerful an uh, impression that book made on me, and, and many, many people like me. So that's this week's Essential Shelf, and Michael Kiltz, I can't thank you enough for uh, coming by, this is, it's, it's so much fun when you're here in Mindspace, you're welcome
0: in my mind anytime. <laughs> well, thank you for having me. And I can't believe I made it to the after party. So super excited. Now everybody's going to want to do that.
1: Uh, you know, we're going to cap this right here. It's not going to happen again. So, uh, and uh, please don't take any of the silverware on the way out. <laughs> thanks for having me. All right. See and you, Evan, Evan. Thank you. Yeah. Thanks, guys. Uh, we will talk to you again next week on Mindspace. We'll do it again.